felt a great disturbance in the force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. I got so much trouble on my mind, refuse to lose. Here's your ticket. Hear the conductor get wicked, kick it, stocks cut up in a thicket, rally faded, bulls are jaded, memes are back but thinly traded, inflation sticky, read the wiki, what comes next? It could get tricky, bubbles pop, give me one drop, a funky beat, this train don't stop, not a fluke, not a flop, straight cash and hip hop, we put it together, we never make you guess, always getting smarter on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard, but grab a handrail because there's track work ahead. Rally interrupted for sure. All three major U.S. equity indexes broke their five-week winning streak last week as inflation reminded us of its stickiness. Both the consumer and producer price indexes rose a little more than anticipated for the month of January as another jump in shelter prices and services kept the CPI and the PPI above 3% on an annual basis. Remember, the Fed wants both of those to be closer to 2%, and it needs to see a continuing trend of lower prices on a monthly basis, and that's not what we got, and so expectations need to get recalibrated. And they did, leading to a spike in Treasury yields, as we would expect, which drove the 10-year yield above 4.3% and the 2-year yield above 4.7%, the highest it's been all year. The yield curve remains inverted, which we've gotten used to. It hasn't slowed down the stock market until last week. With Treasury bill yields above 4%, stocks lose some of their sexiness. And let's be honest, only a handful of stocks have their swagger on these days. We're going to go deeper on that in a few minutes when our pal JC Peretz of All-Star Charts climbs back aboard the Express. While inflation reminded us that it's still winter, there were signs that consumers were feeling the big chill to start the year as well. Retail sales fell 0.8% last month, much more than expected. Maybe we were tapped out after our year-end spending binges as sales did rise 2.5% in December and throughout most of last year. But while spending fell last month as inflation perked back up, consumers were actually feeling better about their future. They still are. That's interesting. The University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index just clocked its highest reading since 2021 when the economy was opening back up again. We're feeling better, even though we have higher expectations for inflation. We don't think it's going anywhere, and we seem to be okay with that, which means prices aren't probably going to drop much from here. And that leads us directly into our big three for the week. Number one, you can't help but notice some eerie similarities between what's happening lately and what went down during some particularly frothy times over the past few centuries. Yeah, the past few centuries. And if you press high-speed rewind all the way back to the early 18th century, to the Mississippi monopolies, through the South Sea Trading Company boom and bust, all the way up to the roaring 1920s until the crash of 1929, the gold price boom in the 1970s amid rampant inflation, Japan in the 1980s before the economy fell into a multi-decade slumber, over to China in the early 2000s amid that phantom property boom, onto the great bond bubble of the early 2000s that's been crashing at our feet, the meteoric rise of crypto and its spin-out, and then the dominance of the FANG stocks, and now the AI effect, well, you start to recognize some patterns. Hard to see them in the moment because who doesn't love a good stock market mania while it's happening? But if you dare to open that history book back up, you're going to see some similar characteristics. Price bubbles driven by innovations in technology, shipping, the railroad, the steam engine, the internet, and now AI. You're also going to see new geographical sources of growth. China, the Mississippi Delta, the American frontier, Silicon Valley, etc. And maybe most importantly, central bank easing. All of those boom and bust cycles were instigated by low borrowing costs in one form or another. Innovation needs cheap money. It's the kindling that allows these breakthroughs to turn into bonfires. But when those rates rise and stay high, 
those fires start to lose their flame. Sometimes it takes a while for them to burn off, but sometimes they go out like a light. Number two, are we in the middle of meme stock 2.0? Well, if you look at the performance of what looks like a random group of stocks, outside of the Magnificent Seven, of course, it might bring you back to the mass-wearing grocery washing days of early 2021. Over the past six months, we've seen some face-ripping rallies for a variety of stocks, including SMCI. It's up 204% over the past six months. That super microcomputer. Okay, it makes servers for companies using AI. That's the AI effect at work, and we've seen what it's done for NVIDIA, which is suddenly everyone's favorite stock. How about Abercrombie & Fitch, though? Shares of the infamous retailer are up more than 190% in the past six months, as it seems to have refound its fashion groove and a new wave of shareholders who love the 1980s. How about Wingstop? Shares are up 94% in the past six months, proving that chickens can indeed fly. I know we're eating a lot more chicken lately and poultry prices are inflated, but that share price spike is starting to feel a little foul. Speaking of the 1980s, I want you to be nice until it's time to not be nice. I still miss Patrick Swayze, but they are remaking the 1980 classic Roadhouse, so we have that to look forward to. But it's Texas Roadhouse, the steakhouse chain of restaurants that's been running with the bulls lately. Shares are up close to 40% in the past six months, but up 25% in the past month. The company reported pretty good results for the past quarter just last week, but they weren't burning down the barn. So why so much enthusiasm? Big spikes in what seems like a random group of stocks, but a group that does have loyalists and fans. That feels like 2021, but there are some notable differences between now and then. None of these stocks are heavily shorted. None of them are heavily hyped on Reddit or Wall Street bets or anywhere like that. There's modest trading volume, not big spikes here, and they're heavily owned by institutions. And retail trading volume is back to 2019 levels, so it's not as if these stocks are being rampantly day traded like the GameStops and AMCs of yore. So while some of the underlying conditions are different, you gotta wonder if the end will be the same. It was about three years ago, February 12, 2021 to be exact, when the pandemic era meme stocks hit their peak and started falling and falling fast. As the great Jimmy Cliff likes to sing, the harder they come, the harder they fall, and fall they did. Now, what was happening around February 2021? Well, vaccines were becoming pretty widespread, and it looked like the economy was about to reopen. But up until then, from the period of November 12, 2000 through February 12, 2021, GameStop notably was up as high as 3,000%. Lucid, the EV maker, rose 312%. Microvision rose 880%. It was heavily invested in crypto at that time. And Riot Games, the crypto-based gaming company, was up 1,200%. Or right about February 12, 2021, or the day the music died for meme stocks, the air was let out of the balloon, and some of these stocks have fallen and may never get back up. GameStop is the notable exception that's up 12% since before all of this madness started. But Lucid is down 91%, Microvision is down 88%, and Riot is down 67%. And number three, since we're kind of in worry mode and we may need a hug eventually, this piece of news was not very helpful either. According to the latest data from the Federal Reserve, U.S. banks have been ramping up their purchases of everything from mortgage-backed securities to collateralized loan obligations after nearly two years of cutting back. If you're looking for another bull market to keep an eye on, it's happening in the credit markets. Commercial bank holdings of mortgage bonds are also on the upswing, climbing 12 out of the last 15 weeks, according to the Fed. Call me old-fashioned, but wasn't that exactly what they were doing from 2006 to 2008 before the mortgage bubble burst and the great financial crisis floored the economy like a tidal wave? To be sure, homeowners and consumers in general are in far better shape than we were in 2008. So are banks. But it kind of feels like banks are taking a lot of residential and consumer risk at kind of a risky time. Let's just hope the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 stays in place. 
let's get set up for the week ahead. And it'll be a shortened trading week here in the U.S. due to the President's Day holiday on Monday. Markets are closed. Earnings will be front and center, especially retail earnings from the big box retailers, including Home Depot and Walmart. They are bellwethers for consumer spending and home improvement. And since the housing market is still frozen in place, we've been doing a lot of work on our homes, according to our partners at Southern Living and Better Homes and Gardens. Readers are looking for information and advice on how to spruce up their home with outdoor gardens, mudrooms, home offices, and kitchen upgrades. Shares of Walmart will split three for one this upcoming Friday, so don't be alarmed to see a smaller share price at the end of the week. A few of the most popular tech companies will also be reporting results this week, including NVIDIA, which just became the third most valuable company in the S&P 500, passing Alphabet and Amazon. Shares of the chipmaker are up 49% this year and up 240% in the past year. If you're a Meta shareholder or you become one by February 22nd, you're going to be getting your first quarterly dividend from the company in late March. That payout? 50 cents a share, but you have to be a shareholder of record by the end of this week. It's going to be a fairly quiet week on the economic front. Fed presidents and governors will be on the speaking circuit, and we'll get the minutes from the Fed's last meeting on interest rates this Wednesday. You remember that meeting, the one where Chair Powell said the committee is unlikely to ease rates anytime soon? We'd like to see more details on that, please. And the Department of Education will hold meetings on Thursday and Friday to review proposals for student loan repayment plans that could replace the plan the U.S. Supreme Court struck down last year. And you might want to buckle up a little tighter over the next couple of weeks. According to our pals at the Stock Traders Almanac, we are heading into what has historically been the worst two weeks of the calendar year for the stock market. It could get bumpy out there. It's easy to get blinded by the lights of higher highs week after week after week for the stock market. But as we've been pointing out, it's been a pretty thin rally to these new tops. We've been talking about the overconcentration in the stock market. We've talked about a lack of strong breath, but those are obvious and on the surface. But if you drill down deep into the technicals and examine hundreds of charts every week, like our pal JC Peretz of All Star Charts, you're going to find more structural weaknesses, but you're also going to find some opportunities if you're looking for them. JC is back aboard the Express to take us deep into the charts and tell us what's really happening beneath the surface, or maybe even in plain sight. He's also, of course, going to give us a few wine pairings because he's our favorite sommelier as well. Welcome back to the show, my friend, and happy belated birthday. Appreciate it, uh, Caleb. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. The recent marketility, is this just February being February, JC, or is there something bubbling? Well, let's remember, you know, the best three-month period of the year is between uh, November and January, and stocks did great. Uh, the Dow rallied 6,000 points. You had a 20% move during a period where stocks are supposed to do well, and what do you know? Stocks did very well. You know, as you know, Caleb, you know, we've talked about it on the show. We've been bullish for so long. You know, the bottom bull market started in the summer of 22. By the time the S&P 500 made its low in October of 22, there weren't any stocks left still going down or very few. So the internals of the market had turned prior. So kind of flipped that on its head. And that's really the, the situation we find ourselves now, but the opposite. So while the S&P 500, we're recording today on February the 16th. Just yesterday, the S&P 500 closed at a new all-time high. However, just a fraction of stocks on the New York Stock Exchange were actually able to make a new high. The list of stocks making new highs peaked in mid-December, Caleb. That was two months ago. But let's not forget that this is a market of stocks. So the same signals that got us so bullish in the summer of 22 fall of 22 are some of the things that have us a lot more cautious this time around. Fewer and fewer stocks going up is less good for the market. What we don't have yet is the expansion in new lows. 
We're not getting more stocks breaking down, at least not yet. So that's what we're looking for next. You write about that in your terrific newsletter, folks. Sign up for it. We'll put the link in the show notes. And you said, we haven't seen the new lows yet. We've seen some weakness, but we also haven't seen this consumer staples rally, right? Consumer staples, you think people rally to when they're worried about what's going to happen next because we got to have staples. Usually those are rallying when there are doubts, but they haven't rallied. What does that tell you? Well, when we look at consumer staples, let's remember, these are stocks. So if we're in a bull market and stocks are going up, these consumer staples are going to go up they tend to underperform on the way up, right? Because of their defensive tilt. And sure enough, uh, consumer staples have been underperforming. They were underperforming all of last year, right? Which is perfectly normal uh, within a, a bull market. But when you look at consumer staples, particularly relative to consumer discretionaries, that ratio peaked in December. Again, almost two months ago, higher lows since then. Maybe not higher highs, but certainly higher lows. So the underperformance of consumer staples particularly relative to consumer discretionary, uh, stopped uh, two months ago. So that's definitely something we want to keep a close eye on because if we're going to have a, a market correction, my suspicion is consumer staples are likely to be outperforming consumer discretionaries. So far, we've seen that uh, over the last couple of months. So you talked about consumer discretionary stocks. The ultimate consumer discretionary stock, although a lot of people call it a tech stock, is Apple, right? That's what we do with our discretionary money. We buy upgrades to our devices. It is a consumer discretionary stock for all intents and purposes. The second most widely held stock on the planet, probably number one in most people's portfolios. What are you seeing there? Because it is a real market mover. I agree that it is a market bellwether. It is one of the most important stocks, not just in the United States, but around the world. And, you know, as bullish as we've been of Amazon during this bull market, we are now back to those uh, former highs from 2021, late 2021. You know, we're approaching those levels now. So is the risk versus reward from the long side as favorable as it once was, particularly over the last 18 months or so? Uh, the answer is no. Throughout all of last year, Amazon presented tremendous buying opportunities. The way I look at it is like, okay, mission accomplished. We're now back to those former highs. So maybe we break through. In fact, my suspicion is that we ultimately do break through and go on to make new all-time highs. But I have a personal rule when it comes to buying stocks right at former resistance. It's not something I like to do. I used to do that in my younger days, Caleb. These, you know, these days, uh, I got more gray hair, a little more wisdom, too much pain uh, I've suffered uh, from doing that in my early years. So uh, it, to me, uh, short term here, we want to feed the ducks reevaluate if we're able to break out later this year. Yeah, funny how those thresholds tighten as you get older and have a few more mouths to feed in your house like I know that you do. All right, stocks get all the attention. The big stocks get all of the attention if you think about what's happening with Nvidia and some of the AI stocks, but bonds really run things around here. Not a lot of people pay attention to them because they're just not sexy, but it's been a terrible bond market for years and bonds don't look so healthy right now either. What are you seeing in the bond market? How should that affect the rest of the capital markets? Treasury bonds look terrible, Caleb. They've been falling all year. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the bond market bottomed in October, started to rally really when stocks really took off into that fourth quarter. I also don't think it's a coincidence that the Treasury bonds, you know, the, the long end of the curve, something like the TLT, it peaked on December the 27th. That was also the day the dollar bottomed. I don't think that's a coincidence either. Bond market's been falling all year. And this is a real asset class. This is a $130 trillion asset class, this bond market. 
It's not like the cryptocurrency market where it's less than two trillion. Every cryptocurrency can go to zero tomorrow and it's not going to matter to anybody who matters, right? It's an irrelevant asset class. The bond market, and by the way, not that we haven't been buying Bitcoin or th that there is an opportunity in cryptocurrencies, quite the no, opposite. We've been size matters, that. though. Size matters is really all I'm saying. Put things in perspective. Those things don't really matter in the whole scheme of things. Like I said, tomorrow they can go to zero and it won't matter to anyone who matters. The bond market, on the other hand, I can't have a serious conversation about the stock market without talking about the bond market. And it's not because of what the bond market is doing this year or what it did last year. Caleb, you've known me for a long time. I've always been that way, right? Because that's the big bully. That's what's moving markets. It's the push and pull coming from the bond market that is infiltrating other asset classes, particularly stocks. So when I see the bond market crashing, I don't think my bet is not that the stock market's just going to ignore that. I think that that volatility will spill into stocks. You know why we, uh, we've we been laying out some shorts over the last couple of weeks, which has caught people very off guard because I guess we were so bullish for so long that I somehow convinced people that I was a permable, but you know very well I am anything but, my friend, anything but. Early to the rallies, early to leaving the party when it's time to go. You don't get emotional about it. And if you do read the All-Star Charts newsletters like I do every single day, JC's been talking about this for weeks. And you've also been talking about the dollar, the greenback. You just mentioned it too. Again, coincidence? I don't think so. You don't think so. Dollar's been getting stronger too. And that has a big impact as well. That's exactly right. This is the only safe haven. So Caleb, you and I, for a long time as market participants have seen U.S. Treasury bonds serving as a defensive asset. When stocks are under pressure, money flows to Treasury bonds, right? Well, that that stopped a couple of years ago, right? That hasn't been the case at all. Actually, stocks and bonds have been trading together. The defensive asset has been the dollar. It's only been the dollar. And it's not a coincidence that as soon as the dollar peaked in early October, that's when stocks stopped going down. Literally, the day that the dollar peaked on October the 3rd is the day that the new lows list peaked and things got better from there. And then sure enough, December the 27th, the dollar bottomed. And that was the day that the new highs list peaked. A lot, you know, small caps peaked that day. The treasury bond market peaked that day. A lot of things turned and the dollar's been absolutely ripping over the last six, seven weeks or so. And during that period, we have seen a deterioration in market breadth as the S&P 500 and the Dow and the NASDAQ have gone on to make new highs over the last couple of weeks. Fewer and fewer stocks are making new highs. Even just yesterday, I didn't think it was possible to see fewer new highs, but somehow the market found a way, even less yesterday. Very impressive. Yeah, when, when you have these big, beefy market cap stocks like NVIDIA throwing their weight around and even the metas of the world, that's going to happen. You're going to get new highs, but again, breath has been terrible. All right, let's stick to currencies because I had to read this one twice. The Polish Zloty, why should I care about what's happening with Poland's currency right now? You bring it up in one of your newsletters. Why care about that? You're not looking at the Zloty as a, as a market investor. I, I really don't know what, what you're doing. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Here's the thought process, right? So we're talking about the dollar. You're talking about the dollar as a safe haven. The euro represents 60% of the dollar index. So you got a ton of euro in the dollar. You got some British pounds, some Japanese yen. We know that. So yes, the dollar index is a lot of euro, but the dollar is not just the euro. So when you go further out in the risk curve and you look at emerging market currencies, Brazilian real, Mexican peso, right? Thai baht, you're looking at these different 
emerging market currencies as a barometer for the U.S. dollar, a higher beta barometer, a more sensitive barometer, right? And the Polish Zloty is just one of those, right? It's a great one because the Polish Zloty has been moving very tightly with those emerging market currencies inversely to the U.S. dollar. So as the Polish Zloty is doing well and some of those other emerging market currencies as well, so are stocks. But when the Polish Zloty and other emerging market currencies are not doing well and they're falling, like we've seen over the last six, seven weeks, that's not good for stocks. And we've seen that too. So pick the Mexican peso, pick the Brazilian real, the Polish Zloty, the Thai baht, Korean won. Pick your favorite emerging market currencies or look at a basket of them, which I like to do. Our good friends over at Wisdom Tree have a great ETF, CEW. It's not the most liquid, but there's a lot of information in there. Uh, and if you are have exposure in the stock market, which I obviously do as an investor, I also do it for a living. Uh, the the Zlotys front and center, Caleb, front and center. Yeah, who knew? But that's why we talked to you. We want that intermarket analysis. We want to find the patterns of the charts that most of us aren't looking for. All right, JC. And then there's copper, Dr. Copper, as you taught me. And the doctor's always right. What's the doctor saying right now? Well, I don't know if Dr. Copper is always right, but it's right a lot. I am actually really impressed with what the copper has done this week. Copper and bonds have really been trading together, kind of pointing to a, a sort of risk-off situation, freeport McMoran rolling over. Quite the reversal this week, and I am actually very impressed. You know, one of the things that we do, and I'm sure you've noticed over the years, is a great technician named Frank Teixeira, PM over at Wellington for many years. The way he always said it was like, well, on one hand, you've got this and this and that. And on the other hand, you've got this and this and that, you know, weighing the bullish characteristics, weighing the bearish characteristics. And whichever one is longer, whichever has the bigger list, maybe we should lean in that way. So shout out Frank Teixeira. Uh, you should get him on the podcast. You know, that's really how we look at things. And, and yet last week, I would have put copper in the, in the negative implications, in the bearish camp. You know, based on the action this week, I would maybe put it back into the neutral camp. So, you know, one for the feather in the hat for, for the bulls there. Uh, bonds have continued lower. You know, Apple, we're initiating short positions if it breaks 180. You know, there are Apple's a bellwether for this market. So I would put Apple in, you know, the bearish camp. But I got to tell you, copper coming in this week and kick saving a beauty, maybe. Uh, but uh, I am impressed with copper uh, this week. If we start to take out last week's lows in copper, you start to see lower lows. I, I would start to worry. And if the bond market really starts falling apart here, I think you're going to see it. Copper is definitely worth watching, 100%. You gave us some great patterns, some great things to look at, but I know you look at so many charts, so many patterns every week. I got to know your favorite pattern of the moment right now, or your favorite chart. What's the one we all want to keep an eye on? We want to bookmark it. We're going to share it with you folks in the show notes because it's very, very illuminating to see the world through the way JC looks at it as well. Yeah, you know, I think it's got to be technology relative to the rest of the market. So in other words, a ratio between the XLK and SPY, right? So tech, 30% of the S&P 500, 50% of the NASDAQ 100, the world's two largest companies dominating that sector, Apple and Microsoft. These are bellwethers, Caleb. You know, I'm old enough to remember when Apple was a big deal. Apple was, uh, you know, people would respect the behavior of Apple stock. These days, it's like, ah, super micro, NVIDIA, AI, who needs Apple? Maybe, maybe I'll call me old fashioned. 
right? Call me old fashioned. For me, I see Apple making new lows every day relative to the Qs, new lows every day relative to SPY falling for two months in what I'm being told is a face ripping bull market. I don't know. I'm seeing relative weakness. And if the largest sector in the market, which one could argue is the most important sector in the market, you know, really rolling over on a relative basis, momentum really rolling over its most important stock, really looking terrible. I want to initiate a short position if Apple is below 180, but forget how we're going to play it just as an information. Even if you don't want to be short Apple or long Apple, you could use that as information. If Apple's breaking 180, if technology on a relative basis is breaking down, chances are stocks are under pressure. Chances are volatility is elevated. Chances are the Zloty's getting killed, dollar up, rates up. This whole market, the narrative is, you know, the market is anticipating these lower rates. Well, if that's the case, then how come the U.S. 10-year yield is making new multi-month highs? Like, that doesn't, that doesn't look like lower rates to me. Uh, what, it's the opposite. It's actually higher rates. And these technology stocks uh, hate higher rates. So, and, and you're seeing that. Yeah, and there's where the concentration issue is an issue. When you start to see technology break down because it's so heavy, you'll see the rest of the market follow. Great advice there. All right, if you thought we were going to let you out of here without some wine pairings, then you got another thing coming, JC, because you are our favorite sommelier. So I'm heading to Uruguay. I'll be in Uruguay this week. Heavy on the lamb, heavy on the meats. Got to go for it here. I need a deep red or at least a, a, a juicy red to go with that. What are you recommending? I mean, listen, when in Rome, right, uh, you're not going to go to France and order a Barolo, right? You're not going to go to Tuscany and get a Bordeaux, right? When in Rome, you're in Uruguay, order some Tanat. Uh, Tanat is a Rhone varietal uh, from the south of the Rhone Valley in the, the southeast of France. It's one of the hottest wines in the world right now, uh, pun intended, I suppose. This thing's on fire. People, people all over the world are drinking Uruguayan Tanat. I encourage you to do the same. Oh, I, I know that'll be on the table. Probably start things out with a little media medio over there just to get things moving in the right direction. All right. There will also be a healthy amount of shellfish, I'm hoping, or definitely some Dorado uh, coming out of the, uh, the sea there. Maybe some sauteed capers and fennel. What's a crispy white to go with that? What kind of shellfish? Like shrimp or like oysters? No, no. The more like clams, more like mussels. So when you think in clams and mussels, like I think creamy. So I want to think viscosity. If we're talking shrimp or fish, maybe something a little higher acid, you know, Michael, well, like, you know, if you're eating like a bronzino or something, maybe like an acidico or something, something like, or like a Riesling or something like that, like a higher acid wine. But if you're going to be eating like creamy shellfish, the, the, the clams and the oysters and the, the mussels, you know, you want something with more viscosity. So like, you could do an albariño, for example, from Spain, but I'm call me old school. Uh, I'm I'm tra a traditionalist. When I hear creamy shellfish, I gotta go muscadet, right? So in Nantes, which is where the Loire Valley sort of ends, like that delta of the Loire Valley over on the northwest of France, which is for Americans kind of equivalent to like New Orleans, right? Like the delta of New Orleans looks very similar. Don't drink the wine from New Orleans, though. In France, they do the muscadet, and what they do is they leave the lees on. So the dead yeast cells, they leave that in the wine and let the wine age with those dead yeast cells. It's called lees. And what that does is that adds an element of, you know, you get that viscosity, that 
creaminess, that that milkshake, you know, mouthfeel that's going to go so well uh, with those clams and the mussels that I would find myself some Muscadet Surly is what you're looking for. Um, that's me. All right, I'm writing that down and I am definitely going to take your advice. Come for the charts, stay for the wine picks. It's JC Peretz of All Star Charts. Sign up for the newsletter, folks. We're going to put the links in the show notes. The webinars are terrific. And find JC and his crew on Stock Market TV on X every day at 8 30 in the morning. Nobody knows charts the way All Star Charts knows charts. Thank you, JC, for joining us again. Appreciate that, Caleb. You're the man. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Jurian Timmer at Fidelity, one of our favorite follows. And that term is stock buybacks or share repurchases, if you prefer. By now, you likely know what those are. But just in case, according to our favorite investing education website, a buyback or a share repurchase is when a company buys back its own outstanding shares to reduce the number of shares available on the open market. Companies buy back shares for a variety of reasons, such as to increase the value of remaining shares available by reducing the supply, also to prevent other shareholders from taking a controlling stake, also when a company deems it has no better use of its extra cash than to buy back its own shares. No matter the reason, the impact is undeniable. A repurchase reduces the number of shares outstanding, thereby inflating in a positive way the earnings per share and often the value of the stock. Share buybacks effectively raise the payout ratio for equities, i.e. the percentage of earnings which get returned to shareholders via dividends and share buybacks. A higher payout commands a higher valuation, and companies love to be highly valued. As Jurian points out, with all those buybacks comes a significant amount of earnings inflation. With fewer shares outstanding, every dollar of earnings gets a little more mileage in terms of translating into earnings per share. By Jurian's calculations, earnings per share are 20% overstated because of the reduced share count given all the buybacks lately. Deutsche Bank estimates that share buybacks could top a trillion dollars in 2024, up from around $890 million last year. If you factor all those buybacks in, the five-year cyclically adjusted PE ratio of the S&P 500, according to Jurian, is 4.6 points understated. That, my friends, is financial engineering at its finest. Thanks for joining us this week. As always, and special thanks to JC Peretz of All Star Charts for getting back on the Express and sharing his chart expertise and his wine selections. Both are always welcome here on this train. We'll link to JC's newsletters and his channel, Stock Market TV on X, in the show notes, along with all the other reports we cited on this week's episode. If you love getting technical, follow JC and his team. And hold your head over these next few weeks because it's going to get a little choppy out there. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.